Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and for the opportunity to uh, look at the history of your people here in, uh, in, in our church. <coughs> and we pray, Lord, help us to glorify you not only here in Sunday school, but in the worship service as well. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. And my, and my notes are still not up yet. So, it's all right. I don't know exactly what you did. That's okay. I know. I know. So I was just, I had, yeah, I had, I had Wendy turn this on in advance so that we wouldn't have this problem, and I'm not exactly sure what she did, but that's all right. We're here now. I'm not exactly sure either, but we're here now, and, and life is, is a happy place, if we can just. Windows, I'm not sure she did anything. That's right. And I get, my computer gets lower. <laughs> Come on. There we go. All right. We're in the Renaissance. And um, as we're going through this, we've been talking about the fact that things have been kind of messed up. And th now things are going to start really wobbling out of control. I mean, things that have been messed up for a while, they're just going to keep falling apart for the next 100 years or so until we get the Reformation, in which case everything gets fine. Right? Everything's wonderful after the Reformation. So life, life is good. But at this point, we're going to start thinking, we're going to start to see why we're going to move from people who are trying to reform things to people who say, okay, enough of this. Because now, we've already seen, like, Peter Waldo and people like that who are trying to reform the church. We're going to see more people, like somebody today, we're going to see Erasmus in a little bit, who are trying to reform the church. Uh, even Martin Luther was just trying to reform the Catholic Church. He was a Catholic priest. Uh, but we're going to start seeing that that uh, increasingly the Catholic Church is going to be at a point where uh, people are going to feel like they can no longer be Christians in the Catholic Church. Some of the stuff we're talking about today is starting to plant the seeds of that, even more so. But, last week we talked about the bubonic plague just laying waste to half of the population of Europe, right? 200 million people, upwards of 200 million people dead within four years. That's, that's kind of huge. And that doesn't include the 3.5 million people. Yes. Doesn't ask Actually, we were talking about that uh, last week. It eventually did, but not. It took a while to do that. Uh, both Krakow and Milan, and I did look this up, had a strong Jewish population who all kept to themselves and and practiced cleanliness and hygiene. They tended to get fewer fleas from all the other people, and thus tended not to get. Uh, the plague as much. So yes, Poland, what would become what we know as Poland, that whole area just kind of was it, it, it was it was its own thing. It was doing its own thing. It had its own version of Christianity. It had its own troops, etc. So you got 3.5 million people dying in the Hundred Years' War on top of all that, right? Um, and then hundreds of thousands of Jews that were being killed because obviously Jesus must be angry to. Uh, uh, to have 200 million people die of plague, 3.5 million people die in a war. God hates us for some reason. It must be because the Jews killed Jesus. Let's kill a bunch of Jews. That will make God happy. Because it's always made God happy in the past. You know, people killing his people, right? Yeah, always worked out nice. Now, it didn't destabilize Europe as much as, like, remember when we talked about Justinian's plague and how you gut Europe, and everything kind of falls apart. It's like a post-apocalyptic moment. This wasn't as much. How, why not, do you think? I mean, this, is, this kills 50% of Europe, and yet it doesn't, it, it doesn't make everything fall apart the same way. 
Was it a little bit more stable before it started? Um, not necessarily, because there's still a lot of infighting between these city-states and stuff. It would have been nice, but now, some patches, maybe. In large, I mean, there's no one answer, but in large part, it's because it wasn't centralized. If you remember under Justinian, it, it, you have this one big empire, one big central government. And once you lose large chunks of it, the infrastructure falls apart. But if you remember, everything that's going on during the, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance is very decentralized. Everything, whoops, everything's, uh, everything's smaller. And so, uh, just like, just like with, uh, with us as a church, if, hypothetically, we had a Sunday where we suddenly realized that nobody was leading the worship music, could somebody theoretically step up and go, oh, okay, I'll just lead it a cappella, and everything keeps going just fine. I mean, it's hard to picture how that would look, right? We had that this summer. That's why that was funny, but nobody chuckled. because. But but that's the thing is, you go, no, we can do that. You can kind of turn on a dime because we're we're a smaller entity. If the worship team didn't show up to Northwood some Sunday, they'd be stymied. They'd be like, how can we have a service? We have no idea what we're doing now. Same sort of thing. Anyway, 1365. So just after the midst of the plague, after Europe has been pounded by this, a guy named Timur took power in Central Asia. And you may look at that and go, I don't know who Timur is. Hopefully, by the end of the day, you will. When he was nine years old, he, this, this Turk from Uzbekistan um, was taken by, and his brothers were taken from their home by a bunch of invading Mongols as they wailed through. Okay, do you remember? Where, do you, I should have brought up a map. Do you know where Uzbekistan is? It's right next to the Black Sea, southwest corner of Russia area. Think about that. So, um, he was taken from his home. They were forced to raid caravans, raid small villages and things like that to try to survive. And one time he was wounded by a bunch of arrows, but specifically in his leg. And from then on, they referred to him as Timur the Lame. Um, and that's going to be important, even if you go, yeah, all right, whatever. But that's going to be important for you to remember later. It's Timur the Lame. But the injury, instead of leaving him like crippled where you'd say, oh, well, everybody else is going to have to do his work for him. He's not much of a, of a warrior. He actually decided to use that to his advantage and think through things. He became a tactician as opposed to just somebody who would run around and shoot people. Um, and uh, there's a, there's, in fact, there's a classic story of a time when uh, he and his brothers were trying to decide who was going to lead their band. And they're like, all right, we're going to start at one place and have a foot race and whoever gets to this this pole first they get to lead and you go well Timur's not going to do it then right and and so he was lagging behind because he's lame and right before they got there he whipped off his hat and threw it and, and got to the and, and, and got to the uh, the pole and everybody else got there and he lagged behind and you know, one of his brothers said I got here first he said no my head got there before you did I get to be leader and the other brothers are like actually no we'll take that you know this He's, he's thinking outside the box. That's what we need. This guy was a military genius. And he also made good use of gunpowder. For the first time, you've got the Mongols really making use of gunpowder to do their, their raids and things. He saw himself as the spiritual descendant of Genghis Khan. And he said, what we need to do is the, the great Mongol empire that Genghis Khan had made has broken up into all these different Mongol tribes. We need to bring them all together into one gigantic tribe again and take over everything. Now, unlike Genghis Khan, though, he was Muslim, and he had to try to connect himself to Genghis Khan. He had no 
direct connection. So he ended up assassinating the, the, the husband to Sarai Muk, uh, Sarai uh, Muk, I think is how you pronounce it, Sarai Muk Kano, who is one of Genghis Khan's actual blood descendants. He's like, I'm going to murder her husband, take her as my wife, now I'm connected to Genghis Khan. Uh, even then, he couldn't call himself a Khan because he had he had no blood connection. But as a Muslim, he said, "I am. I'm going to try to present myself as this divine warrior. I am the sword of Islam, and I am going to conquer everything in the name of Islam. I'm going to take Central Asia. I'm going to wipe out all the Christians. I'm going to wipe out all the pagans. We're going to make the world Islamic." And sounds like today. Huh? Kind of, yeah. Except that this guy did what so many of these modern Islamic leaders couldn't do, which is galvanize all these different groups together. So if you could picture Al Qaeda, ISIS, yada yada. Um, pardon me. Yeah. Al Qaeda, ISIS. Okay. If you took every aspect of all of those, fair enough. If you took every aspect operating in every country as one big entity, plus all the all the uh, uh, just radical Muslim countries that have no connection with the spiritual uh, forces of Al-Qaeda or what have you. If you put all those together into one big force, that would be Timur's idea of what this is. Um, won huge victories against Christianity, especially uh, uh, they have this big siege of Smyrna where he took out the, the, the Knights Hospitaller, who were the the Christian studly knights at this particular point in history, and and made a name for himself in that respect. Within three decades, he had taken all of Central Asia as one holding, and was digging into um, uh, like the Ottoman Empire that had taken over Anatolia here. In fact, all of this is now a Muslim empire called the Ottoman Empire. Constantinople is just one lone Christian city in the midst of this, surrounded by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he took out the, uh, the sultanate that was, um, that was ruling northern India in Delhi and, and started pushing his empire through there. He started taking lands from the Mamluks in, in Egypt and taking lands there. So he was going to make from Eastern Europe all the way through to China one empire, one Muslim-Mongol empire. And was getting very good at it, actually. They, the Europeans corrupted Timur the Lame's name to Tamerlane. Have you ever heard of the name Tamerlane? If not, that's a darn shame, because if there were two phenomenal, powerful Muslim war leaders that you should know, it's Saladin from, uh, from the Crusades and Tamerlane. Tamerlane just was the scary word in, in, in the Renaissance in Europe. They were terrified of this guy. Because he just, for like I said, for like 35 years, just conquered everything he touched, and and did it rather ruthlessly. Tamerlane was brilliant. He was extremely generous to his allies. Um, gave his holdings to everybody. He did, you know, made sure he didn't just wallow in in in, uh, in in wealth things. Phenomenally generous to his allies. Completely ruthless to his victims. Um, in a, in, the, in the city of uh, Isfahan, he slaughtered 200. Uh, supposedly 200,000 people, because it was a nice, populous Christian city, stacking their heads into these towers. I don't know if you can tell from the picture, but that's, a, that's, a, that's supposed to be a, a stack of heads. And eyewitnesses described 28 towers in Isfahan, each with 1,500 heads in them. In fact, you, you see his men here carrying heads to him. Um, he, 
he uh, at one point made it a rule that um, that each of his warriors had to bring him two human heads from from any place that they conquered. His warriors were so scared uh, that they were actually slaughtering prisoners from other raids and and you know their own servants and things like that, even their own family members, so that they could bring him two heads, uh, because you just did not disappoint to Tamerlane. Pretty intense, actually. And this is a guy that that consciously consciously is like I, I'm not even necessarily trying to convert people. I'm just trying to wipe out anything that is not Islam. Uh, 1404, he turned toward China, and he said, I'm going to do what all the other Mongols have tried to do, and have failed to do up to this point. Yeah? Sorry, um, I have a quick question, but I may not be quick, and if it's too off track, then. Okay. Um, today's language is talking about how, you know, the, the ISIS, you know, isn't Muslim, they're like terrorists or radicals, and, and we should separate them from, from the religion of Islam because they're not actually promoting, they're not actually living out the beliefs of Islam by, by, this, by being so radical. This is what they're saying. Would, would something in that case be like, I mean, how, like, was he about uh, I, I, it, it all depends on how you're defining this. Um, just like you would say, um, if you look at at the really bad popes and at the Church of Christ people down the street and at the Methodists uh, promoting gay rights parades and at the Baptists holding their bake sales, which of those are Christians? Well, technically they're all Christians. So there's all sorts of different flavors of what it means to be Muslim, beyond even just Shiite, Sunni, etc. I mean, even within those. Um, most Muslims that people would run into in the United States today would be very similar to most Christians in that they're, you're like, oh, I take this seriously, but not particularly radical about this. Um, just like most Christians sit there and go, well, I can't go to church on a Sunday, and I'll occasionally read my Bible, and that's fine. If you say it's not Islam to promote violence, um, I really think that's probably wrong. I mean, when you when you look at the, the history of Islam, when you look at, at, at how Muhammad lived out Islam, when you look at, uh, at at various things, not only in the Quran but in the Hadiths, you know, when 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 the various uh, uh, teachings in, in early Islam, when they're talking about the glory of dying in jihad, and we need to slaughter everybody that is not Muslim. Um, that when Jesus comes back, he will kill everybody that is not Muslim. Um, you, you go. Um, I kind of think it's probably fairly Muslim to to be to be fairly intense like this. Uh, it, it, it certainly doesn't go against much of the of the teaching of the Hadith to to, to do that sort of thing. Um, I don't want to go into gobs of different detail, but I mean, so it's like, which is, so when, when I look at, at something like ISIS, when I look at something like Tamerlane, I'm like, no, that's pretty much what I, what I see early Islam doing. Having said that, um, I think too many people, when they think Muslim, that's what they picture, and thus their, their Muslim neighbor, they look at them and go, you're going to blow up my house, and they could care less about blowing up your house, they have no desire to blow up your house. So... Um, maybe the better way of saying, you know, conservatively evangelical 
Islam in America, that's not a particularly good shot, snapshot of it. They would look at Tamerlane and go, oh, no, you're bad. But then again, I would look at Edward Longshanks and go, yeah, don't tell people you're a Christian, please. So, so would, we, would we define Tamerlane as a terrorist? I don't know. If somebody's this good at it, are they a terrorist or a conqueror? I mean, a, a terrorist, you tend to think of people operating in cells and, you know, and, and not telling people who they are and wearing masks and, and kind of conquering from behind the scenes. Whereas conquerors, you go, no, you've got a whole big green area where you're going, this is Tamerlane land. I'm not sure that you call him a terrorist or a, or a, or a conqueror. I'll see different from Alexander before. Oh, I can't remember. I'm sorry. Putin and... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 conqueror. That's right. All right. Um... Yeah, that's, not, it's a, that's a good question, and that's a better question to, to express more in detail maybe afterwards. That's about as far as I can go here, because it's, it's a, no, no, it's a good question. Um, the Ming, there's a brand new dynasty in, in China called the Ming Dynasty that make a bunch of, of bases. That's what they do. Yeah? How long does it take to have a dynasty? I guess technically, like, technically a generation. I mean, the whole point of a dynasty is that there's more than one of you. You know, you... You, you last for a smidge. There was something in the news a while ago about like a new a new dynasty has become an ISU or something. I'm like, dude, the guy was there for like three years. Well, we misuse terms all the time. In fact, we're going to talk about misusing terms in a second. Uh, but no, 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 no. But, uh, but the, the, there's a new dynasty going on. But you're not calling it a dynasty yet because it's new. It's just a bunch of Ming. But uh, under Emperor Hongwu in China, it actually repelled an invasion by the Mongols in, in 1368, and even kicked the Mongols out of Xanadu, Shangdu, you know, where their summer palace. Remember, we talked about that with uh, uh, Marco Polo. And so we, they, they've actually kicked the Mongols out. They've actually uh, built their nifty wall and, and said, no, nope, nope, we're China, and you can't come in. But this time he's like, no, I'm going to go in. I'm going to conquer China, and then I'm going to turn around and use the wealth I get from China to attack Eastern Europe. Now I'm going to take, my plan is to be from one sea to the other. I want everything from Portugal to Japan to be one big, long Islamic empire. He had vision. Unfortunately, he also had the plague by the time 1405 came around. So Tamerlane was stopped in 1405 by the plague. And everybody goes, oh, okay, so it has its it has its good points, you know, other <laughs> things too. Um, but very intense guy. Successfully broke the back of Central Asian Christianity, though. We've already seen, you know, people come in and, and lay waste to this, specifically a lot of these Mongol leaders that really damaged Christianity. But Tamerlane took it out. I mean, it's like they're... After Tamerlane, there is no Central Asian Christianity. Uh, now, we're seeing some research, resurgence of some of this kind of stuff. But after him, no. We're going to have to rebuild it completely from scratch. He killed 150,000 Georgian Christians in Georgia there. Killed 200,000 Jacobites in Kurdistan and Syria. Killed 500,000 Mesopotamian Christians. Killed 4 million Christians in, in his attempt to be uh, the sword of Islam. Over, over time. And yet, what's interesting is, his, one of his staunchest allies is uh, King Enrique, or as they would say, Enric III from uh, Castile in, in Spain, which isn't Spain yet, it's just the Iberian Peninsula. Why, why on earth would a Christian king in Spain 
be the staunchest ally of this Muslim Mongol in Central Asia. They ain't anywhere near each other, but yes. He's generous to his allies. He is generous to his allies. <laughs> Both of them were supporting each other. That's good. That, but they could have been, you know, that's one of the reasons why people were weird allies. Is, you know, I'm married to your sister's cousin. Because he's killing Protestants? No. <laughs> they're, they're not there yet. <laughs> Close, though. Uh, Enric is trying to get rid of that last pocket of Moors of southern Spain. And. Uh, Tamerlane is trying to conquer even Muslims that he sees as less important Muslims, or you're doing it wrong Muslims, or I just want you to be part of my empire. The people who were on the, in Granada and the southern part of Spain were allied with the same people, that he, the Mamluks and things, that he was trying to attack in Central Asia. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so both of us don't like these guys. Both of us are fine with taking out all these guys down here. Therefore, we're friends. You help me, I help you. We send troops back and forth, all this kind of stuff. Send support back and forth when we need it, because we're both trying to undermine these guys. And if we can both attack them from the two different sides, then they can't defend either way very well. So ironically, even though he's slaughtering Christians right and left, a decidedly Christian king is giving him money and troops to do it. Because he's also slaughtering these Muslims, who we hate and we're trying to get rid of. Right, you find that, right? Did Tamerlane actually? Uneasy, like? <laughs> no, no, not at all. In fact, Tamerlane said, uh, he, he said, Enric is like, is, like is like my blood son. So, yeah. on, on the news, I was hearing um, that the saying something about, like, this could be a new day where Israel can ally with all its Arab neighbors against ISIS. Which would be bizarre, wouldn't it? And um, it would be like that. It would be very much like that. And uh, the rest of the Arab world is like, whatever. Yeah. I, actually, I'm pretty sure everybody on both sides of that equation would look at that and go, but you're siding with the crazy people. You're siding with the worst people. Both sides of that would, would look at that. What were you saying? I was just going to say, was Tamerlane even far enough to even consider invading Spain yet so he didn't worry about it? No, and I, I didn't read this anywhere, but that is actually one of the things I thought of is maybe part of why they get along so well is they're on opposite sides of, of a continent, is they're far enough away and fighting the same people that they can go, you are not going to offend me, I'm not going to offend you, we're never going to fight. Ever play Risk or Diplomacy or something like that, and you, you sit there and you go, well, me and England and you and Turkey, let's be buddies. We will never fight. There will never be a time when blue hits yellow. It's just not going to happen. So I think I heading up Syria likes us uh, for going after the terrorists. Yep. Both. Uh, we don't want to help them, but uh, it does. It, do, it, it there's, there's, there's political expedience to doing this. Freaky, weird stuff going down. But I should, since I specifically broke that up, I should say this: between the jihads of Tamerlane, the interchurch crusades, the inquisitions of the popes, more than 25 percent of the world's Christian population were martyred for their faith in the 14th century. A quarter of Christianity in 100 years got got off. Some by Tamerlane, but a lot by Christians. We're slaughtering Christians right and left. We still haven't been able to get rid of we. They still haven't been able to get rid of the, uh, the uh, Albigensians in, in France. The Albigensian Crusades are, are still going on, hundreds of years, and they've been slaughtering these 
Cathars or Albigensians all over the place. Um, people who are still like the, either the, the physical or spiritual descendants of the Albigensians will still look back at this and just talk about the horrors of the Albigensian crusade. In fact, I was reading something in, um, oh, I was reading something in uh, um, the uh, Ellery Queen magazine that comes out you know, every, every, every month. And somebody had written a short story set in the Middle Ages, and they were talking about the horrors of the Albigensian Crusades, and and just describing that as, as part of the thing. And I'm like, "Yep, this is just pretty much a horrible time to be around in France." Um, but I've never heard of boxes for martyrs. Um, Let's look around here. Something that I noticed is that most of the martyrs are carried out by the popes. Mm -hmm. Now, what was Fox religiously? Wasn't Catholic. So I, I, I think he did have a smidgy bit of an axe to grind with that. And yet, he's right. I mean, the, the, the vast majority, the vast majority of the people that he's writing about at that in that time. Yep. Um, yeah, and this is on top of the plague in the Hundred Years' War. So this isn't just a quarter of the world's Christian population died. This is a quarter of the world's Christian population were specifically killed because of their faith. We're still alive to be martyred for their faith. Other people then got killed too. In conjunction with the plague. So I don't know even what percentage of the Christian population all told died. You just know that 25% were martyred. I told you that the third of the 14th century is just a, it's just death. It's just death followed by death and death and death and death and death and death. This is this is why so many people were saying this is the end of the world. It's very clearly the end of the world. It's the end times revelation right now. Who's the beast? Look around, because he's floating around somewhere. Why did they call this the Enlightenment? Uh, well, this isn't the Enlightenment yet. Why do they call this the Renaissance? Renaissance, yeah. Because, because we're starting to do things more like ancient Rome. Rome is being oh, reborn. Right. Okay. I remember I talked about this. We had a whole thing about the Renaissance. And it's important to remember, I, I would love to visit the Renaissance Ethereally. I wouldn't want to touch or smell anything. Um, but I'd love to see a lot of it. But most of the Renaissance, if you get outside of Leonardo da Vinci's workshop, if you get outside of looking at the beautiful art, the beautiful sculptures and things like that, most of the Renaissance is pretty much the worst time in European history. The Renaissance is much more vile than anything that happened in the Dark Ages. We just name them badly. We name it the Dark Ages because we're no longer holding on to a lot of the Greek and Roman things. We name it the Renaissance because now we're starting to do things like the Greeks and Romans. That's what those terms are, are referring to. Now, sitting where we're sitting, we tend to look back and go, Renaissance, a rebirth of order and love and cleanliness. You go, no, that's when they stopped bathing. You know, They bathed in the Middle Ages. They stopped bathing in the Renaissance. Anyway, 1377. Let's get back to churchy church history. Gregory the Eleventh condemned a group called the Lollards. Uh, Gregory is a big fan of the Inquisition, loved burning heretics at the stake. So he, he's just like, these, these guys we want to take out. So let's talk about the Lollards. Name comes from a Middle Dutch word meaning one who mutters. And, and so, so Lollard, Lollard, mutter, mutter, but it's the same sort of thing. It's onomatopoetic. And so the detractors of the Lollards are like, you're just talking fun talk. You, know, you just you don't talk good. You're just utter. What you say is utter nonsense, because they were saying that they disagreed with the Catholic Church. Crazy, crazy, crazy talk. Um, they said, you know, I think the church has lost its way. I think we need to get back to the Bible. Remember, that's what the Waldensians said. Peter Waldo was was 
wealthy enough that he's like, I can actually afford to get chunks of the Bible translated and I can read it. Hey, I don't think we're doing this. You know, now that I'm actually reading this, I don't think we're doing this. The lawlers are the same way. They're like, you know, now that, now that we're reading some of this stuff, I, I really think we're doing it wrong. I think we're ignoring scripture. They said, you know, I, I don't think the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. I don't think there's anything that tells us in the Bible that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. That there's only one vicarious God on earth, the Pope. Is there anything in Scripture to suggest that? No. I don't think any bishop is supposed to be vicariously Jesus. And I certainly don't think that there's any one bishop that the Bible specifically says has preeminence over every other bishop. I just don't see that anywhere. So there are precursors of the show me where it's written thing. And we would look back and go, right. A bishop is just a pastor of pastors. No pastor is supposed to be the vicar of Christ. We had a whole sermon about this last week about, you know, I'm not a priest. It's not my job. I don't stand in God's place or Christ's place. In fact, they called Pope Urban VI the Antichrist. He, because remember, it's the end of the world. And the Lollards are like, we're definitely in Revelation. It's the end of the world. Everybody's dying. Who's the Antichrist? Well, it must be the Pope. As it turns out, Urban's not even that bad a Pope. He's, he's sitting in this special throne, and he's killing off Christians. So. On, a, on a city of, of hills? You know, yeah, you know, read, because you can make an argument, make a solid argument that Revelation is talking about Rome when it's describing that city. Um, simony, an indulgence. Remember simony, where you say, if you, if you give me money, I will give you blessings, or give you an, a, an office, or whatever. <coughs> Indulgences, if you give me money, you get you get automatically forgiven for things in advance. Uh, he's like, you know, they're, they're wrong. It's contrary to what the Bible's saying. You, you really shouldn't pay. In fact, we call it simony because that's what Simon Magus did, and Peter said, you're wrong for doing it. It's not what the Bible says. The worshiping of icons is idolatry. When you're worshiping these things, when you're saying a picture of a saint, that's what I worship. I kiss the picture of the saint, and that's when my prayers will be answered. That's, that's idolatry. That's wrong. I, I love this. It's ridiculous to worship and adore things, even splinters of the cross or, 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 or anything like that. It's ridiculous to worship something just because it might have physically touched Jesus. Especially when, you know, there's 412 pinkies of John the Baptist floating around here. I don't know that we can really trust that any of these are, are valid, but even if they were valid, I love this quote. If the cross of Christ, the nails, the spear, the crown of thorns are to be thus honored, then why not honor Judas's lips if only they could be found? If you are honoring his crucifixion stake, if you are honoring the spear that pierced his side, if you are honoring the crown of thorns, I mean, people are paying good money to get a thorn. Probably from England somewhere. You know, you're going to pay good money to get a thorn because somebody said, this is one of the thorns of the crown. But Jesus, they go, I Yes, I will pay good money, and I will honor that, because it touched Jesus. He goes, Judas's lips touched Jesus. Honor those. That's the same thing, right? And they're like, this is ridiculous to do who it this way. Um, I don't remember who wrote that one. Okay. But that's a, that was, that was uh, from, because uh, I read that in a book that was saying, you know, according to the Lollards, and so, I don't know. Um, they said it's ridiculous that priests discourage uh, uh, Christians from praying for the living. Because that's God's job. You don't pray for the living. God will take care of that. You pray for the dead to get them out of purgatory. It's the opposite. There is no purgatory, according to the Lollards. And why would you pray? So you don't pray for somebody who's struggling now because that's a lack of faith in God? Oh, this is backwards. 
<coughs> for that matter, they say you should only pray in a holy place. You can go to a, a consecrated ground. That's where you need to pray. And they're like, no, God's everywhere. You go anywhere and you can pray to God. Why should we only pray in a church? By the way, do we still find, even people who are Catholic, who have never even been Catholic, do we still find that, that people tend to think, I need to go to a holy place to pray? Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. Holy places are places set apart to do worship. And there are times where you say, I just want to be completely set apart. I want to go pray in a sanctuary, what have you. But there are people who go, I need to pray, therefore I need to go find a holy place. It's like, no, God can hear anybody anywhere. There's nothing wrong with using a holy place, but it's not like he hears you better in a holy place. If anything, the only thing that changes is you. You tend to be more focused when you're praying in a holy place. Um, they said, there's nothing in scripture to suggest that the bread and wine are anything other than bread and wine, even after they've been consecrated. They're signs of Christ's blood and body. They're, they're very important, very poignant signs of this. But they're not manifestations of them. There's no reason for us to, we keep taking all this stuff and elevating it instead of elevating God. And taking splinters of the cross, taking holy ground, taking bread and drink, and saying, worship this, honor this, focus on this, misses God. We're missing, we're, we're losing the baby in the bathwater all over the place. Um, they said, it's wrong to sing with melodies. It's wrong to sing with notes. We need to sing plain song, one note, because it's the words that honor God, not our impressiveness with our music. I'm not saying you agree with everything that the law would say, but I'm including this because this is something I do. But do you understand their rationale here? They're like, everybody's trying to, to sing. I mean, you've got Catholic uh, uh, choirs that are basically singing fa la 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 I mean, just notes. And, and saying, because what honors God is how beautiful it sounds. And I appreciate beauty as much as the next guy, and I think beauty can honor God. But I totally get where the lawyers are saying, so wait, you actually, in your praise services, have ceased even praising God. You are now just focusing on the la-la-las and how pretty it sounds. You're missing the point now. Personally, I like melody, and I think you can praise God with melody. I think they've gone a little too far, but I do get where they're reacting to there's no biblical reason why clergy shouldn't be allowed to marry. There's nothing in scripture about that. Why can't clergy marry? There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, we would probably have fewer problems with our clergy if we let them. Because we're having problems with guys having sex with little boys and things. And if we let them have sex with their wives, that probably would help, I think. And that's their argument back then. In fact, they said, I'm not even sure that that whole priesthood thing makes a lot of sense. Aren't we all priests? Weren't we supposed to be a kingdom of priests? Isn't that the whole point? Aren't we all supposed to be sharing God's message? That's a lollardy thing. They would go out uh, two by two, preaching the gospel as itinerant preachers, telling people, this is what the Bible says. You may, you may have spent your whole life going to church, but you may never have heard the Bible. And increasingly, you may not have even heard God's name when we're singing. You just hear the followers. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about Jesus. I have a great deal of respect for these guys. The primary leader of this was an English theologian named John Wycliffe. This is the guy that's preaching this stuff. I like John Wycliffe. Every once in a while there is somebody that stands out and you go, he's one of the good guys. John Wycliffe, one of the good guys. I like this guy. So we probably ought to talk about John. Born in Yorkshire, is a, is a, never an ordained priest, but he was a professor of philosophy and theology at Oxford. And so he got to read the Bible. 
right? He read it in Latin, and he's like, oh, we're doing it wrong. The more he read, the more he became convinced that we're doing it wrong. And he started, t started telling everybody else, which is why this is John Wycliffe, who's doing the preaching down here. See with their little pointy forked beard. Um, <laughs> now I can do this. That's why I grew this out to be a little long recently, so I could be John Wycliffe for, for a moment. <laughs> no, then the whole thing would be the same. But, um, he, his protector was John of Gaunt, who was the regent of England for young King Richard II, which is good, because it meant, unlike a lot of these theologians, he actually had um, the time and the resources to produce stuff. I can write books. I, I can preach stuff without getting arrested for it. And this is a good thing. It's not as good a thing because nobody liked John of Gaunt. So, I mean, <laughs> nobody, can, nobody can pick on you uh, because the regent is the one who's making sure that you get a chance to do this. But it's not like I'm going to have a lot of power in Europe or a lot of authority behind a lot of things. Nobody can take me out, and yet I can't really accomplish a lot because nobody's going to respect the guy who's, who's protecting me. So, pros and cons. But in some ways, I think that ended up helping Wycliffe in the long run because um, instead of being a reformist leader who's leading this huge reform movement that breaks away from the Catholic Church, he goes, no, no, he just builds the foundation for a lot of this stuff. And he gets to do some different things that are really, really important. He, he was pretty much roundly hated by the Catholic clergy because he's sitting there saying they're all a bunch of corrupt, weird, immoral people because most of them were. Because I mean, remember, at this point, they're sitting in Avignon sucking up to the French kings and things. This is not a healthy environment. But he also picked on the, the monastic movement, which was really big, big in England and big throughout Europe, saying they're a bunch of wealth hoarders. Because you remember the original monk, Antony. This guy was nuts, but he was devout. He was sincere. He's like, I'm just going to go you know, live off the land and spend time by myself focusing on God. That's what I think monks should do. Great. That's not what monks are for the most part in Europe now. Um, you still have some movements like the Franciscans who are running around going, I don't think Jesus even owned his own clothes. <clears throat> I think, because that's the whole point of, if anybody needs my jacket, you can take my jacket. We should never own anything. We should all be, all be poor. And got into big debates, and popes, there were a couple of popes that were like, okay, we're going to outlaw the Franciscans because they're saying it's wrong to own stuff, and we own a lot of stuff. Um, but most monks uh, were not like that. By this time in history, Monasteries were extremely wealthy, extremely powerful. They're the ones that owned the land. They got taxes from the local land, uh, people on the land. So if you really wanted to be crazy wealthy, be a monk. I mean, this is, this is the, they're a powerful group. Except after Wycliffe, um, the, the monasteries in England started having to work for a living because nobody started paying them alms. Uh, he, he said, you know, taxes belong to the king, not to the church. And the king's regent said, I agree. <laughs> and everybody stopped paying alms and taxes to the and, and the, and the, and the monasteries went, but we own that land. And the king's like, no, you didn't. The, the church said, you own that land. But if you remember, we've had a lot of discussions about who's in, actually in charge, the church or the king. I think the king. Therefore, the king owns all this land. If you want to eat, work. They really didn't like it. it was decidedly unpopular after that. Um, probably most unpopular, though, because of the thing that we hopefully remember him best about, is translating the Bible into English for the first time so that everybody could read it. 
This is huge. This is what Waldo was trying to do, right? He's like, this. I want everybody to read the Bible. I, I want everybody to do this. I'm a reformer. And yet, who translated the Bible into Latin? Remember? Why? So that everybody could read it, right? That's why we call it the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate Bible, the vulgar terms. This is the language of the people. That's what vulgar means, of the people. So you go, Latin, Jerome translated the Latin so that everybody could read it. And ironically, over the centuries, the church has said, yes, now that we're the only ones that really read Latin, and the scholars are the only ones that really read Latin, keep it in Latin and keep it out of the hands of the everyday people, as Jerome intended. Which point you want to <laughs> You've missed the point. But Waldo, Jerome, Wycliffe, they're like, let's, let's make the Bible so everybody can read it. And so he translated Jerome's Latin Bible. He didn't go back to the Greek and Hebrew. didn't read Greek and Hebrew. But he translated Jerome's Bible into English. And he was very careful about it. They got the best, most accurate copies they could find, because there's a lot of versions of Jerome floating around. Because it's all handwritten, right? You can't, like, photocopy it and say it's the same. <laughs> so you get the best versions of it, because there's bad versions out there. Let's make sure we get the best, most accurate versions. Um, let's, let's think about who's written what about how to even study the Bible, how to study any kind of literature. Let's, let's take all those kind of texts into consideration. Let's make sure that we study Latin grammar so that we understand not just the words, but how it's all put together, and we put it together the same way, instead of just saying, well, I feel like this, church, like this verse means this. Like, no, no, what did the verse think it meant? Uh, and then translate it into English, the best translation we can find. This is basically the sequence that we use now. They established how we go about translating. You go back to the best versions of the Greek and Hebrew. You get the best copies of this. You, you make sure that you have the best exegetes who have got the best uh, training in how to put this together. You try very hard to, to base it on the grammar of the Greek and Hebrew rather than just on your interpretations of things. Don't grind your own axe. Grammatically, what is this verse saying? And then do the best job that you can do to, to translate it into a vernacular people understand. So do you have a whole team that works with him? Him and a guy named Nicholas oh. of Hereford. Uh, Hereford. This is, this is two guys. Do this. Uh, it took them, it, they, they did the New Testament, and then they took another four or five years and did the Old Testament. But it took for stinking ever, if you can imagine, to do. Even though they were fluent in Latin and fluent in English. No, they did an awesome job. And there it is. The first Bible translated into English. And everybody in the room said, thank you, John. Or at least Nikki does. So there you go. Now, this may not look like English to you. Does this look like English to you? Now, part of it is it's got like the pointy things that we think of with Roman or but they're with German. But this is John 1, 1 through 3, in Middle English. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, and the Word was at God, and God was the Word. This was uh, in the beginning at God. All things were made by Him, were made by Him, and without Him was made no thing, that thing that was made. Oh well, old English sounds very much like German. I'm not even pronouncing this right. It, 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 if you do, I'm not even going to try. Can you read it in Middle English? Uh, no, 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 I won't see you later. But now I'm all, now I'm all like, now I'm all like, uh, to do it in, in, in Middle English, it's, 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 you got to do it like a, like a combination of, of French and German, because Middle English is basically a combination of French and German. Because uh, you have Old English, things like Beowulf was written in very Germanic, 
Middle English incorporates a lot of Frenchisms into it. Um, before you get into like what we generally consider modern English started with Shakespeare. That era is modern English. Um, but if you can see, I mean, even though this is a freaky way of spelling beginning, B-I-G-Y-N-Y-N-G-E, it's still beginning. It looks like a kid learns right. It does. There wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of, of, of clear spelling rules at this time. It's really kind of phonetic uh, with with things, but except for like except for like adding the little en at the end of some verbs, you could read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was at God. You know, that's that just sounds like modern English, strange phraseology, but it's kind of fun. Now you'll notice that the th sound is being made with a thorn symbol. Um, the same way as the Vikings and the Germans did it. You've, you've seen this symbol a couple times in our, in our class. That's that symbol. You can see it, it's actually a little stylized, but it, that is that. It's, it's got that line there and a little hoop, like, a, like it's a P, thorn. Therefore, the Middle English way of writing the actually looks to modernize as if you were saying ye. Even though this is two different, two different letters, right? You can see that that's not the same letter as this. Because this comes down and has a line that comes down from this side. If you can tell the difference between a modern V and a modern Y, you can see why they can tell the difference between a thorn and a Y. Okay, two different letters. And yet, if you're trying to sound old Middle Englishy, this is why people say ye old fill in the blank. Trying to sound Middle Englishy and failing miserably because you don't understand that that doesn't say ye, that says the. <laughs> but you're dumb. So, but that's but but this is what people do, and and, and it's not. I shouldn't say dumb. I shouldn't say dumb. Ignorant. Yeah, uneducated on this. Ignorant. Uh, you know, I didn't know that until I knew that. So, you didn't know that until you knew that. Now you knew that. Anytime that you see some ye old magic shop, you just go sigh. <laughs> Well, actually, I'll say, well, no, no, stop it. I will say one thing that's interesting. Um, you notice they say, yeah, I got that. Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was at God, and God was the word, which is slightly different syntax than the way we normally do it. Because they were being so careful to do the same letters, or the same words, as the Latin. In Latin, word order has nothing to do with syntax. There is no syntax about word order in Latin. So the boy bit the dog can mean the same thing as the dog bit the boy in Latin. The point is, word order in Latin is the same as word order in Greek. You put things at the beginning of the sentence if you want to emphasize them. It's their, putting things earlier in the sentence is their version of doing italics. And so it, you can switch things around, yeah. So in Latin, but, and God was the word. That's different in English. You know, when, they, when they did it this way, this is saying God became the word. Whereas Jerome was trying to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, because at and with would have meant the same thing in the Middle English period. The word was with God, and the word was God, as if you were like italicizing the word was and then underlining God. You know, the word itself was God. He was divine, right? It's not, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. By the way, the word became Jesus. But the word had always been God. By following, and, and he was so he's trying to emphasize the godness of the word, and so he put God first. 
and trying to follow the Latin word order and trying to be very conscientious about that, he actually changed the point of the verse. Because in English, word order matters. So, wacky fun. Okay. Anyway, um, you'll also notice the page is handwritten, right? It's not mechanically printed because it's still 100 years before Gutenberg does that, right? So this is, this is handwritten, which is why John Wycliffe invented bifocals. As he put this together, to perform all his work. Uh, it wasn't Ben Franklin. I know that it's supposed to be Ben Franklin. Um, but no, just like uh, Bell did not invent the telephone, the Wrights did not invent the, the, air, the airplane, the flying craft. Um, Marconi did not invent the radio. Edison did not invent the, the light bulb. <laughs> no, Al Gore did invent the internet. <laughs> the internet. But, but like all these people, what Franklin did was perfect and, and uh, very publicly perfect a consistent use of the technology. Uh, Edison was not the first person to get a light bulb to work. He was the first person to very publicly, very splashy, get it to work consistently. Same thing with, but this is 400 years after Wycliffe came up with bifocals. So uh, give John some, some credit with this. Uh, we, we, we like him. He's cool. But you've got this proto-reformation teaching, this preaching from the Wallers, the theological writing to Wycliffe, his translation of scripture, bifocals, and that stuff. It, it really is, it's hard to overestimate what this guy did in his lifetime. This, the, the, the power of what he accomplished in, 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 in what we see as modern Christianity. There are some circles that look at Wycliffe and say, again, you know, oh, beginning of the end. He got, the, got the, the Bible in the hands of the everyday person. What a, what a twerp. Um, I look at him and I'm like, thank you very, very much uh, for all the stuff that he did. Like I said, he kind of comes off as one of the white hats in history. because he, And he did so without like saying, leave the Catholic Church. Oh, he was pretty strong his polemical writings. And he's like, oh, they're, they're, this is the Antichrist. This is it. But trying to reform the Catholic Church from within and trying to do so nonviolently. Um, he died from a stroke while, while speaking a mass. And his work was carried on by a follower of his, a Czech priest named Jan Hus, who we'll talk about next week. Jan is cool, and we'll talk about Jan. But the Hussites start taking things in some different directions than some of the Hussites, in, in different directions than maybe some of us would be comfortable with. But, uh, but that's for next week. That's for next week. Um, this is not going to be the last that we're going to hear about John Wycliffe. He's going to keep coming back up, and I mean that literally. Uh, 20, 30 years after he dies, they're still going to be doing things with John Wycliffe, including with his body. So, interesting stuff. That's what, yeah, I thought he was burned at the stake. He was. After he was dead. They dug him up and burned him at the stake. Oh. Yep. Really dead. Really, really dead. Well, no, this um, Long story short, that would not work in their favor. There are other popes and things that have died doing that sort of thing. You gotta say that's sacrosanct, you know. So. Um, Gregory formally condemned Wycliffe's teaching the same year that he formally moved the papal throne from Avignon back to Rome. Like, that's where it should be. We're moving back to Rome. This is great. Then he died. Uh, <laughs> seriously, like a couple months after he moved back to Rome. Rome! Dead. Which left us another pope, Urban VI, who I said is not really that bad a pope, but he alienated everybody. 
the College of Cardinals wanted to, to or felt compelled to elect a Roman Pope. We'd had all these French Popes. Now the, the papacy's moved back to Rome, and all the Roman citizens are like, Roman Pope, Roman Pope, Roman Pope. Enough of the French guys. So all these French Cardinals said, fine, 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 let's get an Italian. They found Bartolomeo Brignano, an Italian trained in Avignon under Gregory. I'm like, great, everybody's going to be happy, right? Okay, he annoys everybody. He's not actually Roman, he's from Naples. But the French went, yeah, but he's Italian. And the Romans went, you idiots, we've had a Roman Pope. So the Italians hate him. He's not French or cardinal, so all the French cardinals hate him. And he doesn't know how to interact with them. He's really bad at interacting with people. He's got a really nasty temper. He's got no patience with anybody. He's got no political savvy at all. And so he torques off everybody, all the other political leaders, so much so that the cardinals say he's gone mad with power. We've given him power, and he's mad mad. What with the fact that he's commanding clergy to refrain from Simon in taking bribes and things? Who is he? Who does he think he is? You know, uh, reforming Pope? I mean, he's a jerk, but he's a jerk with the right ideas. You know? So uh, they decided to elect a new new Pope that same year. The same cardinal, uh, uh, same college of cardinals elects a new new Pope. They get Robert of Geneva, who speaks French, from a French-speaking important family. You know, the kind of guy who should be Pope. And it becomes the new Pope, Clement Seventh. No, no. Urban is still technically Pope. Because he's not done anything to depose him for. So you've got two Popes elected by the same College of Cardinals. Two official Popes at the same time. Setting off something we call the Western Schism. Because we remember we had the schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Now we've got a schism within the Western Church. The exact same people picking two completely different guys. So does that mean there's three Popes? No, there's only two right now. Okay. They have patriarchs. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, they're like, oh, you're crazy. We have the patriarchic concept, and that's in charge of everything. It's not quite it isn't. It isn't. Uh, well, I, he's a bishop with bishops. He's a bishop with bishops, and he's the primary bishop, and in that respect, it's the same as the Pope. But there isn't that sense of he is the vicar of Christ. What he says is absolute law. He doesn't command troops. I mean, it's 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 a different thing. But there's officially two dueling papacies. Urban stays in Rome. Clement goes back to Avignon. And Europe chooses sides. You've got England, Northern Italy, Scandinavia, and Eastern Europe all siding with Rome. In part because England goes, I hate France. I'm at war with France. Anything in France is bad. Which means France goes, France is good. Spain sits right next to France, so Spain says France is good. Scotland says England stinks, so France is good. Uh, Naples is a supportive of, uh, of Avignon. What with the fact that yeah, their guy has been co-opted, but it just gets weird. Everybody's fighting everybody else. Everybody hates everybody else. Ironically, the Holy Roman Empire is neutral. The Holy Roman Empire says, I don't care who's Pope, I think you all stink. <laughs> the Holy Roman Empire, I don't touch Rome or the church at all. I don't care about your mouth. I don't have my own. <laughs> yeah, but I find it fascinating that a group called the Holy Roman Empire is sitting there in Germany going, yeah, wrong schmo. Um, but they always said that? Yeah, that's it. But you've got, you've got two legitimate popes. Now, later on, uh, the, the Catholic Church decided retroactively you can't actually have two legitimate popes. Therefore, Clement had to be an anti-pope. But at the time, he's a popey pope. And they're, they're both totally popish. But he wasn't as reform-minded as Urban, which is why he got to be anti-pope later. Um, 
he had been he'd been referred to as the butcher of Sasena. He had been the leader of the papal troops, and so he slaughtered eight thousand prisoners after taking the, the city one time uh, while he was commanding troops. Uh, he was famous for being able to decapitate somebody with a pike, which is actually kind of difficult to do when you think about it. Um, so, but he was this consummate warrior, very very tough guy, and not a very nice one. Uh, he really encouraged simony and bribe taking. In fact, that's how he paid for his papacy. He's like, you know, I, I want my cardinals taking bribes. We need a rich uh, church so that we can accomplish God's ministries. So I, I, I want extortion. I want to. I want to force people to give us money and things. I also really enjoy sex with little boys. Um, so the 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 jerkins for the page boys had always hit them like around the knees, and he had them officially shortened to just under the belt, so that he could look at little boys' buttocks uh, on, on a regular basis. This is a messed up guy. This is a guy that should have technically been the Antichrist, as opposed to Pope Urban. Urban was a jerk, but he seemed to want a pure church. Clement is utter slime, and, and, and so I'm fine with him being an antipope. Um, but I think the whole thing is starting to get ridiculous. Um, so, uh, Urban reigned till 1389, Clement till 1394. But it still continued after that. You still have the Avignon popes and the, and the Roman popes. In fact, this is where it gets fun, 1410, you get a third pope in Pisa. So you get actually, by 1410, you have three official, honest-to-goodness, popes. Not three different bishops in the church, because there's a lot of bishops all over the place. You could have had a bishop in Avignon, bishop in Rome, bishop in Pisa. No, no, no. Popes. The single only head of the Catholic Church. Three of them at the same time. Who the third one? No, 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 that's, that's, that's for next week. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> 1397, the, Medi the Medici. I grew up always saying Medici. Um, it's Medici. So if I slip and say Medici, forgive me, but it's Medici. The Medici Bank is created in Florence, and that's going to end up changing everything. And this is where we're going to pick it up next week. <coughs> but all of a sudden, you're going to start having, instead of just kings, instead of just popes, now you're going to have families running things, specifically Italian families, with a lot of money and a lot of thugs. We're going to have like Marlon Brando and things like that uh, starting next week, and we're going to start looking at how the Borgias, well, it's also originally technically a Spanish family, but the Medicis, um, different, different families like that, um, and then ultimately even the Habsburgs, not an Italian family, but Norman Italian. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you do understand, hopefully, why, and this is why this we're even doing this class, is to get a, a, an idea of this, why it is that by the time you get to like the turn of the century, the 1500s, why you get a bunch of Catholic priests that say, enough. Enough is enough. We have tried so hard to reform this from within. And if we could still do that, I'd like to try. But I think we're going to have to step out because this is utterly corrupt. It takes centuries for the Catholic Church to get rid of its corruption enough that it can start being a, a, a viable church. But there comes a point where there's like, I'm, I'm done. You've got, you've got, once you get to Rodrigo Borgia as a pope, there are people who just go, I'm done. It's gone too far. You don't even know what you guys believe anymore. There's a reason for this. There's a reason. I want you to understand that. So when you think Protestantism, you don't just think people are like, oh, I found my own idea. It's, like, it's not like that. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for 
for the opportunity to understand where we come from as a church family. It's, it's so tempting just to, to be so focused on our own preferences, on our own styles of things that we, we happily break away from one another and divide uh, just so we can have the color of carpeting that we want in our church family. And Lord, it's, it's so helpful to be reminded of how gut-wrenchingly tragic it was to see when people actually felt like they cannot continue worshiping together because of important moral, societal, um, theological issues. Help us, Lord, to, to remember the, the importance of trying to love one another from within even damaged environments and to try to serve one another where we are at and help us all draw closer to you. So I, I pray, Lord, help us to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. In Jesus' name. Wacky fun.